0: Well, please do um, turn up 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and Jax is going to read to us. Thank you.
1: So 1 Corinthians 12, um, verse 31, just the second part, and then we're going to 1 Corinthians 13. And that's page 1154 in the Church Bibles. And yet I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love.
0: Thanks, Jackie. Uh, Good evening, everybody. Let us pray as we come to God's word. Father God, we do praise you that you are love, that all love comes from you. And we do pray this evening that uh, we would understand more of that love, we would appreciate more of your love for us. And by the power of your spirit you would enable us to love you more fully and to love one another more fully. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well what is the the one thing you think that most people want more than anything else? Isn't it to love and to to be loved? whether we are Christians or not if we have been made in the image of a loving God then we would appreciate the concept of love why do people get married? because of love even if they don't accept that their capacity for love comes from God they still accept its power which is why this passage is often being used in wedding services I'm sure you've heard it read many times Many people will be familiar with this passage from outside the church uh, without knowing that it comes from the Bible. I think if you read this passage to the average person on the streets, they would say it's a lovely piece of poetry, which of course it is. But it was also written not just as a general discourse uh, on love between a husband and a wife, but for a particular purpose. It was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth, to correct some of their unloving behavior towards one another. As Christians, they should have been reflecting the love of Jesus, but sadly they had become divided. And as we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks, uh, throughout the letter of uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul has been criticizing the church in Corinth for a lack of love, a lack of of unity. These are some of the things that he's uh, been raising. Um... He's rebuked them for their jealousy and quarreling, taking sides against each other, following different leaders for being arrogant, being sexually immoral, taking one another to court, causing a weaker brother or sister to stumble, and abusing the Lord's table by humiliating humiliating those who have nothing. That's not a pretty picture. Well, we resume this series in 1 Corinthians in chapter 12, where... Paul starts to deal with the issue of spiritual gifts. And the points he's made say, Father, we've looked at over the last couple of weeks are first of all that spiritual gifts are given for the building up of the church. And that is the, the, the common good that Paul refers to and he says, now to each one, the manifestation of the spirit is given for the common good. We said that the most important thing, therefore, is not necessarily to uh, um, work out which gift God has given you, but to, to seek to encourage and strengthen the faith of one another. So what we should be praying is that God would help us to see the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ and enable us to say or do the right thing to help them at that particular point in time. And as God does so, he'll give us the right gifts to use. Last week we looked at the fact that our unity is a gift from God, just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its parts form one body, so it is with Christ. We saw also the fact that our diversity is a gift from God. God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. And so he says that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. As Elizabeth, Samuel, and Hannah suffer, so do we. Chapter 12 finishes, if you look uh, um, to your Bibles, with the exhortation. In verse 30, to eagerly or earnestly desire the greater gifts. And that's picked up again at the beginning of chapter 14, verse 1 there, where it also says, eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit. But then it's like Paul pauses, has a little interlude in chapter 13 to stress, that what is most important is not which gift God is giving you, but the way in which you use that gift which is why he starts in the second half of verse 31 with the words, and yet or now I will show you the most excellent way, the way of using your gifts, which is the way of love for the benefit of others, for the for the building up of the church. And hence he finishes um, in chapter 14, verse 1, with follow the way of love and legally desire the gifts of the Spirit. So the first point that Paul makes in the first three verses of chapter 13 is that spiritual gifts without love are worthless. In these first three verses, he mentions three different types of spiritual gift. And he says, without love, they are nothing. He starts with the one that is most prized in the Corinthian church, that of tongues, and says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Now you may be aware here that the Greek word translated tongues is the same word translated languages. Um, In Acts um, 2, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came, uh, he filled the believers they began to speak in other tongues or languages and all the Jews from every nation under heaven who were staying in Jerusalem heard their own language being spoken so it could be that this gift refers to human languages that God has miraculously given to people to speak without um, them having to spend years studying them others suggest that the tongues of men refer to human languages the tongues of angels refer to some unknown heavenly language But whatever is meant by tongues here, and we'll come back to that in chapter 14 next week, the point is that if this gift is exercised without love, then it is like a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. It's an empty sound. It has no more value than the sound of a gong in a pagan temple, just a meaningless noise. And he applies the same argument to the gift that he values more in the the building up of the church, that of, of prophecy. It as if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. And what we said um, last time, that prophecy is that ability to know something that would not otherwise be known without the Spirit's help and to apply it to a specific situation. And here he's saying that even if the Spirit enabled us to know every mystery of God, if it's not applied with love, it's worthless. In chapter 14, verse 3, we're told that the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. All these things that are done out of love for each other. Alongside this, Paul mentions the gift of faith, by which, uh, as we said the other week, it's not the faith that each one of us has if we trust in Jesus for our salvation, but it's a miraculous faith that can move mountains, Same expression Jesus used in in Matthew twenty one that believes that anything is possible with God and therefore has the confidence to make big requests of God in prayer. But again, if such faith has no love in other words, if it's motivated by maybe ambition or being being respected rather than trusting in God to achieve impossible for the sake of others, then it's worthless. And finally, he talks about the most extreme gift, that of total sacrifice or even martyrdom. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I am nothing. Even giving is not always done for the right reasons, is it? It may simply be done for, for recognition, maybe to, be, to feel good about oneself. Even martyrdom may be done to make a name for oneself. Well, Paul uses the gifts of tongues, prophecy, faith, and giving to make his point. But of course, he could have used any spiritual gift as an example. His point is that if gifts are not used in love, then they are worthless. It's David uh, David Jackman said this, The spiritual life of an individual or of a congregation is measured not by gifts or busy activity, not by size and impact, not by commitment to sound doctrine or keenness to experience God's power, but by love. It was love for the world that motivated God to send his one and only Son into the world that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. A promise that Stuart clung on throughout his illness. So if love is the most excellent way, then what does that love look like? Well, in verses 4 to 7, we have a series of descriptions of what love is like. Um, Some expressed in the positive, some in the negative, in terms of what love is not like. And what all of these have in common is that they are different ways in which those who love seek to put the interests of others before themselves. Love serves others. Let's have a brief look at uh, each of them. Love is patient. You know, If we are impatient, it's because something or someone is stopping us from being able to do what we want to do. But if we're using our gifts patiently for the benefit of others, then we will put up with whatever problems or delays come our way, because the people we are helping are worth it. And if we are praying, then we will trust that God will enable things to happen in his time and not in ours. Love is kind. If you are loving, you are keen to do something for the benefit of others. Often, God is often described in the the Bible as a kind God. And kindness is linked to his grace. In Titus 3 it says, When the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. It doesn't envy. This goes back to the lesson from last week, that God has arranged all the parts just as he wanted. And if God has given us the gift that he wanted to give us, then who are we to be envious of someone else's gift? It does not boast. It is not proud. If the gifts are given for the common good, and God gave us the gifts, then it's not down to us. We haven't deserved any gift that God has given us. So we have no right to boast. We don't point to, to what we have done because it's God who's done that through us. Liz and I celebrate our silver wedding anniversary this year. 25 years ago, we flew off on honeymoon to to Malaysia and Singapore Airlines were very generous and upgraded us to, to business class. And as we sat there drinking our free drinks, you know, we didn't look back at those in economy with our noses in the air. We knew that we didn't deserve to be there. We just paid the same price as they had for their tickets. It was because of an act of grace that we were there. Love does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. Back in chapter 12, verse 22, if you flick over the page there, we read, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts we think are less honorable we treat with special honor. We need to listen and learn to each other to value the contributions of each person and not assume that we know it all. It's not self-seeking. I'm sure we would all say our ministry is not about us. We're looking to to serve others, but maybe we are blind to, to other motives which might creep in without us realizing it. And a good test would be to ask yourself, well, if God did take away your ministry tomorrow, how would you feel? Would you would you be angry about that? Or would you trust his word that says God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be? I think maybe, well, he is wanting me to do something else right now. It's not easily angered. Anger is a great way of measuring what is important to us, isn't it? But the sad thing is that most of the time we get angry because we haven't got our own way. Loving people are not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Loving people forgive. Loving people move on. They don't continually replay in their minds how they've been hurt and unjustly treated. When people fall out, it's not usually because of one big bust-up. It's often the accumulation of lots of things uh, that have happened over a period of time that reach their climax. So if we have a, a niggle with someone, don't just think it's a niggle; Deal with it before it becomes something bigger. Keep the slate clean. It's usually just a misunderstanding anyway. Don't let personality differences divide you. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. You might ask, why would a Christian delight in evil anyway, or wrongdoing? Well, it's probably referring to what um, the Germans call schadenfreude, which is a delight in the misfortune of others. Maybe because it means you are one up on them. Maybe because it makes you feel better about your own mistakes. It's an attitude of superiority which has no place In God's church and finally it always protects always trusts always hopes always perseveres there's a real sense here of believing the best in someone rather than suspecting the worst what do we do when we hear something negative about a a brother or sister in Christ well the first thing to do is to tell the person who gossiped to you to go and speak to that person directly if they've got a problem with them, rather than unhelpfully causing suspicion in somebody else's mind. Our priority should be to build each other up, rather than tear one another down. As John Calvin said, love would rather be deceived by its gentleness of heart than injure a brother by suspicion. It is always ready to think the best, to put the most favorable construction on anything That's why love is so powerful, isn't it? It always hopes, it always perseveres, it never gives up. It is powerful because it comes from God. God is love. So when you put this together, this picture of how the believers in Corinth should be behaving towards each other, and compare it with the picture we saw at the beginning that runs through the whole letter, we can see that they, they fall far short of how God expects them to behave. They are mere infants in Christ they may consider themselves spiritual because of their, their gifts, their experiences, their wisdom their knowledge but God is saying because the church is not characterized by love all that is worthless but before we're too hard on the church in Corinth let's ask ourselves what is God saying to us today in Long Crendon? We may be able to put on a, a presentable front, but remember God knows our hearts. Well, in the final section, verse um, 8 to 13, Paul demonstrates the amazing truth that uh, Christian love is everlasting. It says love never fails. That could be translated love never ends. Over against the the... the spiritual gifts which will one day come to an end. He says, where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. Why is that? Well, because in the life to come, they will no longer have any purpose. But verse 9, we know in part and we prophesy in part the gifts of knowledge and prophecy may be valuable now, but will only be valuable in this imperfect, temporary world. Because all knowledge and prophecy now is incomplete. It is partial. We haven't yet been given full revelation. We are living in what C.S. Lewis calls the shadowlands. But when we go to be with God then we will experience, as Stuart is now experiencing, we will experience completion, we will experience perfection. And so, verse 10 says, when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. Those gifts will no longer be needed. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't be desiring those gifts, but we shouldn't be giving them greater priority than the attitude of love towards one another. And Paul uses two images to help us understand this important change. Uh, Have a look at verse 11. The first is the process of a child growing up into an adult. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. He has criticized the Corinthian believers for being immature and childish in their faith. But the point here is that however mature we may be as a Christian in this life, we are still like spiritual children. But when Jesus comes again, we will become mature adults because our knowledge will be complete. The other image he uses is that of looking at a reflection in a mirror. For now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. When Jesus comes again in the second coming, and we see him face to face, the reflection will be replaced with reality. And therefore the gifts again will no longer be needed. I met up this week with the, the pastor of a church in Milton Keynes. When I, when I met him, I said, He He seemed quite familiar to me, although I didn't think I'd ever met him before. Um, And I realized, actually, it was because I'd seen him on a a video that FIC had done, a Getting to Know You video. Um, A video they'd done at his church, in which he was interviewed. All I'd seen was an image of him on a video. But, of course, when you meet him face to face, then it's very different. As we read the, the Bible stories of Jesus, we... We're often struck, I don't know whether you are, by something about him that maybe we hadn't fully appreciated before, just something new as you read those stories again that stands out to you, that the Spirit has um, opened up to you. And you realize that you had a bit of a, bit of a misconception of Jesus. You hadn't fully understood him. But when we meet Jesus face to face, all of those misconceptions will disappear. All those distortions that you get in a mirror, will disappear and instead we will have complete knowledge. Verse 12 says now I know in part then I shall know fully even as I am fully known. God's knowledge of me is already perfect. I am fully known. But on that day he will ensure my knowledge of him shall be complete. And so the question remains, what do we do with that in the meantime? Do we just sit back and wait for him to come? But if we turn to 1 John 3, as we finish, 1 John 3, 2 to 3, here it says these words. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. For we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. To purify ourselves is to grow in Christ's likeness. It's to grow in his love. And Paul is saying that as you desire the spiritual gifts... Focus on the way in which you are going to use them, in love. Love one another as I have loved you, Jesus said. Focus on focus on your relationships that will be eternal. And the final verse sums it all up. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. The reason faith and hope are needed now is that we cannot see the future clearly and so we need to trust in God but once we see Jesus face to face we will no longer need faith we will no longer need hope because what we were believing in what we were hoping for will have come to pass they will be reality God doesn't have faith or hope because he sees the end from the beginning when we do see Jesus, we will still need love. Love never ends. Love is the expression of the character of an eternal God. We will still love God. We will still love his people. And we will experience the love of God for us. And that's why the greatest of these is love.